Welcome to Murderous America. Hey guys, welcome to the first episode of Murderous America. In case you forgot, I'm Maya Tate. And I'm Oscar Shella. So, let's jump into it. In case you didn't listen to the trailer or forgot, Murderous America is a podcast where each week we talk about a different true crime case in a different state. So for this week's state, it's something very close to Oscar and I because it takes place in Lincoln, Nebraska, which is where we go to school. Before we get into it, Oscar, do you have any comments or anything? I'm excited. I don't really know much about the history of this state, so... I know. It'll be interesting. Um, So this case, I've actually been interested in since I was a freshman here. Um, I think I heard about it like within the first week of going to school here and I was like wait that's interesting and I just did this huge deep dive into it and then I took a um, history of modern crime class last semester and there was a part when we talked about this and I was like oh my gosh I know all of this so I'm excited yeah so let's get into it this is the story of Charles Starkweather and Carol Ann Fugate a spree killing couple from Lincoln Nebraska a couple Charles Starkweather was born on November 24, 1938, and was the third of seven children to Guy and Helen Starkweather in Lincoln, Nebraska. The Starkweathers were a poor working-class family, and on occasion the family struggled financially due to Starkweather's father having some medical issues and being unable to work from time to time. Most of the time, his mother was the sole breadwinner for the Starkweather family, only on a waitress's income. The financial inequality that Charles Starkweather noticed in his childhood continued to increasingly anger him throughout his life, and we'll kind of see how that affected him when it comes to the crimes he commits. Yikes. As a child, Starkweather was often bullied by larger classmates due to his poor eyesight, a speech impediment, and a birth defect he had that caused his legs to appear bow-legged. Bow-legged? Yeah. And the bullying only made his growing rage towards the inequalities of life worsen. As he got older, he began working out and tried to emulate James Dean's character from the 1955 film Rebel Without a Cause. Have you ever seen that, Oscar? I have, actually. It's a me, good movie. Me too, but I don't think you really want to try to emulate him. Definitely not. He became increasingly violent to those he didn't like, which is never a good sign. And Starkweather eventually dropped out of high school at the age of 16 and started working as a truck unloader for the Western Union newspaper warehouse. Later on, while he was still working for the Western Union newspaper, Starkweather was teaching his girlfriend, Carol, who we'll get to in a second, how to drive, and she ended up crashing his car. So after he went to his father to ask for help, his father paid to fix the car, but promptly kicked Starkweather out of the family home claiming that he didn't want to put up with any of his horrible behavior anymore and didn't really like Carol. Wow. Yeah. Following that incident, Starkweather quit his job as a newspaper truck unloader and became a garbage collector. During those shifts, he often fantasized about bank robberies and even planned a few, although he never followed through with any of his plans. (laughs) It's all talk. So before we continue, like I just said, we are going to get to talking about Starkweather's girlfriend, Carol Ann Fugate, and their relationship a bit more. All right. So while there isn't much known about Carol's life before she met Starkweather, what we do know is that she lived in Lincoln with her mother, Velda, her stepfather, Marion, 
and her two-year-old little sister, Betty Jean, and the duo, so Starkweather and Carol, met in 1955 when the girlfriend of Starkweather's friend, Bob, introduced the two. Mm -hmm. At the time, Fugate, Carol, was 13 and Starkweather was 18. Jesus Christ. But That's already bad. But the two fell madly in love. 13? I don't know about that. But Carol's family disapproved of the relationship. Obviously. Because they believed that Starkweather was a bad influence on their daughter. Not that he's a full-on adult, basically. Well, that probably played some kind mm. of role in it. On the night of November 30th, 1957, Starkweather walked into the Crest gas station intending to buy a stuffed animal for Carol. When he tried to pay, he didn't have enough money, so he asked the night attendant, Robert Colvert, if he could pay for it on credit. But knowing Starkweather's character, Colvert declined, and Starkweather was furious, and he just stormed out of the gas station. But in the early morning of December 1st, 1957, so only a couple hours later, at around 3.30 a.m., Starkweather enters the Crest gas station another time and buys a pack of Winston cigarettes from Robert Colvert. Starkweather leaves, and he's gone for about 10 minutes before re-entering the, the establishment, this time to buy a pack of gum. Okay. And 10 minutes after that, at around 3.50 a.m., Starkweather enters the gas station one more time, but this time he looks a little different. He's wearing something rather unusual. So along with his typical blue jeans, black shirt, leather jacket, and cowboy boots, he also had on a hunting cap, a red bandana that covered his face, leather gloves, and a 12-gauge shotgun. Starkweather barked at Colvert to turn off the outside lights and fill a bag that Starkweather had brought with him with as much money as could fit. It totaled to roughly $150 in cash and $10 in coins, which is already a lot now, but even think about it from the 50s time perspective. That's, that's a lot. That's a lot, a lot. Yeah. He then orders Colvert to take them to his car and start driving. With the shotgun aimed at his head, Colvert drives down Cornhusker Highway and turns left onto 27th Street. Closely following Starkweather's instructions, Colvert makes a stop on Superior Street. Starkweather tells Colvert to get out of the vehicle, and as he does, Starkweather shoots him in the back and in the head. Colvert's lifeless body lays there until 5 a.m. when his body is discovered and police begin to wonder who could have committed the murder. Jesus. Meanwhile, Starkweather had rushed home and went right to sleep. Like nothing happened. Basically. That's so crazy. Eventually, the police had come to the conclusion that the murder of Robert Colvert had to have been committed by a non-local transient. A non-local. What made them come up with that? They just, they didn't think this could have happened in Lincoln. Plus, um, Superior Street at the time was kind of off the track, if that makes sense. Okay. And so they're like, well, clearly just passing through. Great, please. That evening, Starkweather drove to the South Street Bridge overlooking Salt Creek and threw the shotgun he used in the robbery and the murder into the water. So the very next day, on December 2nd, Charles Starkweather walks into a local thrift store and purchases $10 worth of clothes paid completely in coins. I'm like, that's not sus. No red flags were given that day? I guess not. I guess everything's paid in coins then. I don't know. Starkweather 
an avid reader and fan of comic books and detective magazines, realized that he may not be as safe as he could be. So the following Saturday, December 7th, he paints his 1949 blue Ford the color black. He changes his tires to ensure that they don't match any tracks that may have been left at the scene, and continues to make his usual stops at the Crest gas station to try to make himself seem less suspicious. So he tries to make his car the Batmobile. And things stayed fairly quiet throughout the rest of the holiday season, but on January 10th, 1958, Starkweather's life began to spiral. Between January 10th and January 19th, Starkweather had lost his job as a garbage collector and spent all of his money, which ultimately got him kicked out of his apartment because of unpaid rent, which caused him to start sleeping in his car. Jesus. His parents were telling him that he's spending too much money and time with Carol, and he needs to focus on other things. Meanwhile, Carol's parents, the Bartlett's, became increasingly worried about Carol and her involvement with Starkweather. Also, at the time, Carol had begun to gain some weight, which caused her parents to worry that she might be pregnant, which also caused to much more discontent between her parents and Starkweather. She's probably like 15, 16 at this time. I think 15. Um, Jeez. Everything I found was she wasn't pregnant, but she just gained some weight and they were worried. That's one should. So her parents forbade her from seeing Starkweather, and when she ultimately didn't follow their rules, the times they did see him, they became extremely hostile toward him. Yeah, obviously. Who wouldn't? Yeah. And then Starkweather and Carol's relationship was also taking a turn for the worse. They began to argue daily, and sometimes things would get violent. During this time, some of Carol's friends witnessed Starkweather drag Carol off of the school bus in a fit of rage. Drag? And she would often hide in the school bathrooms after school to ensure that he couldn't find her. Now that's just crazy. In an interview from 2020 with the Washington Post, Carol was asked about her feelings with him, specifically at this time, and she quote said, I told him I didn't want to see him again, but he came back, and I kept telling him to leave. I told him to leave, and I didn't ever want to see him again. And she basically then went on to say that she thought he was crazy. But we'll get to more of Carol's story later on. So now the day is Tuesday, January 21st, 1958. Charles Starkweather told his brother Rodney that he was going hunting with Marion Bartlett and asked if he could borrow his 22 millimeter rifle. At 1 p.m., Starkweather approaches the Bartlett home and immediately an argument breaks out between him and Velda. Velda slaps him multiple times in the face and threatens him to never return. But Starkweather being Starkweather, he returns 15 minutes later, this time with his gun. Marion Bartlett answers the door and, quote, gives him a kick in the ass out the door, end quote. As he should. A furious Starkweather walks to the Hudson grocery store and uses a telephone to call Watson Brothers Transportation Company to let them know that Marion Bartlett was sick and going to miss the next few days of work. He calls out for them? After the call, he turns around and starts heading back to the Bartlett home. Now... No one knows, really, if Carol was home at the time he arrives for a third time or not. She claims that she got home after Starkweather had arrived, and most of the accounts made for the dates and times involved, specifically in this story, came from Carol's 
stories that she told police, investigators, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But whether they are true or false is something that a lot of people have questions about, mm -hmm. especially in Nebraska. There are a lot of people who think Carol made up the fact that she didn't know what was going on. Covering for him. Yeah, well, covering for herself. Mm. But, so whether they are true or false, this is what is believed to have happened next. Starkweather returns yet again and starts another argument with Velda. Velda slaps him again, but this time he slaps back. Marion then enters the room, running towards Starkweather, and they begin to fight. Mm -hmm. Starkweather makes a break for Carol's room, where he loads his gun. Marion enters the room with a hammer in his hand, and without even thinking about it, Starkweather shoots Marion point-blank into the head. Jesus. As he reloads, Velda begins running toward him with a knife. He then proceeds to shoot her in the face before she could get to him. Starkweather then goes to find two-year-old Betty Jean. No, not the baby. So some documents say that he strangled the baby, and some say that he struck her with his rifle. Jesus. But what is consistent in all accounts of the story is that he finished by stabbing the baby. Stab? Oh, no. Now, according to Carol, she arrived home half an hour later, at around 3.30, to find Starkweather greeting her with a gun pointed at her face. Oh, sh He tells her that her family's being held hostage, and without her cooperation, they would die. Held hostage? They're dead. Exactly. So this is what Carol says, but there is mm. some question. Mm -hmm. Over the next few days, it is reported that Carol and Starkweather did everything a rebellious teen could imagine. They drank, smoked, had sex, and ate fast food. But Carol claims that she didn't know her parents were dead, which is where the story gets a little foggy. How? How? How do you not know your parents are dead when you haven't heard from them? They had put up a sign on the door saying that the whole family had contracted the flu, although the sign didn't keep friends and family away like the duo had anticipated. Mm -hmm. The morning after the murders, Carol's friend Bonnie shows up waiting for Carol to walk to school together. Mm -hmm. Carol tells her that she is sick, but Bonnie finds the situation suspicious. She Good. later tells reporters that she really didn't know what was up and she was worried about Carol and mm -hmm. thought she might be in danger. The following Saturday, January 25th, Carol's older sister Barbara, her husband Bob, and their new baby approached the home to surprise the Bartlett's and show off, you know, their new baby they just had. Mm -hmm. Carol claims to have yelled at them to stay away before running out to their taxi to tell Barbara to stay away because if she comes back, then their mother would be killed. Again, this is Carol's accounts of the events, so things mm. seem to keep Carol in a positive light. She's so sus. But we don't know. I mean, we she, don't. to this day, still says she's innocent. So. She's not. No way. So Bob, Carol's brother-in-law, gets into contact with Starkweather's brother, Rodney, the one who gave him the rifle. Mm -hmm. And they both show up to the Bartlett home and are turned away by Carol. They decide that that's a little fishy, so they contact the police, but when the police show up, Carol greets them at the door and assures them that everything is alright. The police report that everything seems fine and leave. They need to search it. That's so wild. The next evening, Starkweather's sister, Lavetta, also goes to visit the Bartlett home. Carol refuses to let her in, but she does tell her that Starkweather was planning a bank robbery with a guy that she didn't know in the other room. She just straight up told her that? Crime. That's the only time you ever hear about another guy being involved, like, involved whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And Starkweather never even said anything about... Their, a bank. Yeah. The other guy in a bank robbery? Yeah. 
so again i don't and i couldn't so, find so. anything from his sister accounting for this mm-hmm. at 9 30 a.m on january 27th carol's grandmother pansy street files a police report stating that carol was denying her the right to see her daughter velda and fears that something is wrong that same morning starkweather and carol leave on foot in a hurry to pick up Starkweather's car that was parked outside of his parents' home. At 10 a.m., a couple of police officers and Pansy Street, the grandmother, Mm -hmm. show up at the Bartlett home to find it empty, and they leave the residence. At 10.03 a.m., Starkweather and Carol are spotted getting gas at a Crest gas station. The same one that it usually goes to. Mm -hmm. Now, between the time of 10.03 and 1.45, there are a couple stories that are from Carol's point of view that really put her as the victim, which I'm not saying she isn't because she very well could be. Um, There's a documentary that came out this year. Ooh, gotta watch that. About how she's one of Starkweather's victims. Hmm. It's just hard to say. Yeah. But I'm not gonna really go into these stories very much because there is no more accounts to this beside her just saying there was. Mm -hmm. So one of the stories is basically they were at a restaurant and she wrote on the check or on the receipt thing that, you know, she was being held hostage and she needed help. Mm -hmm. But the waitress doesn't remember seeing that at all. Hmm. Yeah. At around 1.45 that afternoon, their car gets stuck in the mud near a farm in Bennett, Nebraska. They take refuge in a nearby storm cellar while they make a plan to head up to the farmhouse on foot. Mm -hmm. The farm belonged to 72-year-old August Meyer, And as the duo made their way up to the home, a dog started barking and Meyer showed up. Mm -hmm. Starkweather tells Meyer that the young couple was just looking for some help after getting their car stuck in the mud. Mm -hmm. Meyer agrees to help them and turns back towards the barn. And as he makes his way into the barn, Starkweather shoots him in the back of the head with a 410 millimeter shotgun. He then drags Meyer's body into the wash house and shoots the dog. Not the dog. Yeah. Um, he and Carol then enter the farmhouse, and according to Carol, she sat patiently in the kitchen while Starkweather ransacked the upstairs of the home. Hmm. Back in Lincoln, Starkweather's brother Rodney and Carol's brother-in-law Bob once again return to the Bartlett home. This time, they discover the body of Marion. They found him frozen in the backyard chicken frozen. coop. Well, it was January. Oh. And they also discover the bodies of Velda and Betty Jean in the outhouse. After ransacking the home, Starkweather and Carol go back to Starkweather's car and try to get it out of the mud. A nearby farmer named Howard Ginuki drives by and offers to help pull their car out of the mud. The duo part ways with the farmer and begin to head back to the Meyer farm. Mm -hmm. As they approach, Starkweather worries that somebody had been to the house while they were gone and they had to leave immediately. So they drive for about 10 minutes before Starkweather realized that he was overreacting and decided to turn around and go back to the house. Mm -hmm. Their car gets stuck in the mud again. Again. So the duo starts to walk back to the house. Around the same time, the Lincoln Police Department issues a pickup alert on Starkweather's 1949 Ford. As the couple continue to make their way to the farm on foot, a car pulls up with two young teenagers who offer to give them a ride. No. The teenagers are high school sweethearts, Robert Jensen and Carol no. King. Starkweather asks if they could drive them to the nearest phone booth. So, Jensen, wanting to do whatever he can do to help, 
pulls up to the Bennett service station and tells Starkweather that he's going to have to get out to find the service attendant to gain entry into the phone booth. Mm -hmm. At this time, Starkweather pulls out his rifle and places it at the base of Jensen's neck and instructs him to drive to Lincoln. No. Starkweather sees the storm cellar that he and Carol had visited before approaching the Meyer farm and instructs Jensen to stop there. Starkweather then walks Jensen and King down to the storm cellar. Then he shoots them both in the back of the head as they began to enter the no. cellar. Carol is supposedly in the car at this time, which is again, the story that Carol told law enforcement. However, there are many people who believe that she was just as involved in all this mayhem. As She's Starkweather. gotta be, there's no way. She's gotta be involved in this. So, so, so many missed red flags that no, she, she's involved. So Starkweather and Carol take Jensen's car and get onto Highway 2 toward Lincoln. At this time, Carol begins throwing Jensen's item out the window of the car, and she says this was to try to get somebody's attention, mm -hmm. which that I could believe, but there's still no evidence. No. The duo then drives into Lincoln, directly past the police department and the Bartlett home, knowing that they wouldn't be recognized because of the new car. They had originally planned to stay at the Bartlett home, but as they drove past, they saw police there and continued driving. Starkweather decides that it would be best for him and Carol if they drove to Washington State to live with his brother, Leonard. After a few hours, Starkweather gets too tired and turns around in Hastings, Nebraska, and decides to head back to Lincoln. He believed that no one would suspect him to return, so they would be safe. He is so wrong. At 3.19 a.m. on January 28th, Robert Jensen and Carol King are broadcasted to the Missing Persons Bulletin after having been missing since 7.30 p.m. Yeah, obviously. At 3.30 a.m., Starkweather and Carol drive back into Lincoln. They park in the wealthy side of town and sleep in their car until 8 a.m. when Stark Starkweather begins driving around the wealthy neighborhoods. Now, Starkweather kind of knew where he was going because he was a garbage collector, and a lot of his routes happened to be in these neighborhoods. He knows all those routes. So there is some suspicion that this next place he was going to, he planned and he knew while there's other people who think it just happened to be where mm. they stopped. Sounds fishy. But at 8.30 a.m., the duo pulls up to the ward residence on South 24th Street. Starkweather walks up to the kitchen window and bangs on the glass with his rifle. Lillian Fankel, the maid, opens the door. As Starkweather tries to communicate with her, he realizes that she's deaf, so he writes her a list of instructions. The first was to be to lock up the dog that had been barking since Starkweather got there in the bathroom. Yeah. But as he was writing down his list of instructions, 46-year-old Clara Ward then appears and is also instructed to take a seat at the kitchen table. This is when Carol finally enters the home, makes herself a cup of tea, and goes to a different room in the home to sleep. Jesus. And uh, all this information I got was from History Nebraska, so I trust, so I trust She's it. She's so involved. She's so involved. At 11 a.m., Mrs. Ward serves Starkweather and Carol their breakfast as to their instructions okay now what i think is kind of strange is mrs ward and lillian the maid mm -hmm. stayed around the house cleaning while the couple were sleeping and they didn't try to phone for police or anything they just continued to go along with their day like why but i don't know for sure if carol and starkweather were sleeping at the same time mm-hmm or they were taking shifts. Either way, though, I do know they were sleeping most of the day. Yeah. But a few minutes past noon, Starkweather's Ford is found outside the Meyer farm. Uh-oh. 
At 1 p.m., Mrs. Ward retreats to her bedroom to change her shoes. But after a little bit, growing suspicious, Starkweather goes up to check on her and is fired at by a 22-millimeter pistol. By Mrs. Ward. Hey, let's go. The bullet misses. Oh. And Starkweather throws a knife, striking Mrs. Ward in the back. He then goes back downstairs and instructs Carol to guard Lillian and hands her a gun. He goes back upstairs to find Mrs. Ward trying to use the phone. As he approaches her, he is stopped by her other dog and proceeds to break the dog's neck with the no. butt of his rifle. He tied Mrs. Ward to her bed and then left. At 2 p.m., about 35 police officers from Lincoln, sheriffs, and state troopers surrounded the Meyer farm. Officers yelled into the building that Starkweather had five minutes to come out with his hands up or they would come in. Five minutes later, obviously not there, nine officers outside of the house threw tear gas bombs into practically every window. Ten minutes after that, every officer there is searching the house, the yard, everything in the vicinity. Mm Mm-hmm. And somebody out back yells that he found August Meyer's body frozen in the wash house. Frozen. As he watched the siege take place on the Meyer farm, a neighboring farmer, Everett Broning, recalls that he believed he had heard a gunshot from the night before, along with a car speeding off. He decides to check out the storm cellar that he saw the car race off from. As he approaches, he discovers the body of Jensen and King. He rushes to the August Meyer farm to tell the police what he had found. Following this discovery, County attorney Elmer Scheel files a radio report in search for Charles Starkweather and Carol Fugate under the suspicion of first-degree murder. The suspicion. At the Ward home, Mr. C. Lauer Ward arrives home at 6 p.m. and is confronted by Starkweather. A struggle follows the greeting and Mr. Ward is thrown down the stairs to the basement. Starkweather runs down the stairs and shoots Mr. Ward. Lillian was then brought up to the bedroom and stabbed to death by Starkweather. Starkweather and Carol leave in Mr. Ward's 1956 Packard and begin their journey to Washington State. The bodies in the Ward residence were found the next day by Fred Ward, the cousin of Mr. Ward. Lincoln at this time became increasingly chaotic, as you can imagine. Schools and businesses were shut down, and basically everybody was doing their best to find Starkweather. Hmm. Um, The Lincoln mayor, Bennett Martin, was offering a $500 reward for the capture of the duo, along with Governor Anderson offering $1,000 and even a local radio station and the United Garbage Association both offering $100 rewards. They had bounties on them, for real, for real. Around 2.30 p.m., 15 miles outside of Douglas, Wyoming, Starkweather and Carol drive past a pulled-over Buick. Starkweather stops the Packard and walks up to the Buick and knocks on the window, awakening Merle Collison, a traveling salesman. Starkweather tries to convince Collison to trade cars with him, but Collison refuses. Starkweather retreats to the Packard and, as he always does, grabs his rifle. He returns to the Buick and fires through the window, killing Collison. Carol gets into the backseat of the Buick while Starkweather pushes Collison over to the passenger seat. What? The car of Joe Sprinkle happens to drive by just as this is happening and sees Starkweather struggling to release the handbrake. Sprinkle stops on the side of the road to see if the car needs assistance. Starkweather got out and ordered Sprinkle to help him release the brake. As Sprinkle approached the car, he saw Carol crying in the back seat and the lifeless body of Collison. Sprinkle reaches for Starkweather's gun 
which then results in a quarrel in the middle of the highway. At this time, Wyoming Deputy Sheriff William Romer happened to be driving to Douglas and encounters the group on the road. Romer pulls over and Carol immediately runs to him and gets in his car and starts explaining everything that has happened. Hmm. Starkweather spots the sheriff and runs into his Packard and speeds away while Sprinkle also runs away. Romer calls Douglas PD to create a roadblock before taking off after him, Carol sitting in his passenger seat. Hmm. A car chase began as Starkweather turned onto the highway heading back to Nebraska. Douglas Police Chief Robert Ainsley and Sheriff of Converse County Earl Heflin are tailing Starkweather. Heflin starts firing shots into Starkweather's window when a piece of glass rips through the side of Starkweather's ear. Starkweather abruptly stops his car and gets out, worrying that he has been mortally wounded. Mortally? Hmm. His shirt is covered in the blood gushing from his ear. He's basically laying on the side of the road, thinking he's dead. He's then handcuffed and taken to Douglas Jail. Finally, though. On the ride there, he tells Heflin to go easy on Carol because she had nothing to do with the spree. Although, he would later recount this statement and claim that she partook in some of the murders. All of them? The duo were held in Converse County Jail until they could be extradited back to Nebraska. As they both signed their extradition papers, mm-hmm. Starkweather joked, saying that the only reason he signed his was because he hates the smell of gas, which was the form of capital punishment that Wyoming used. Really? Yeah. Gas? Like, yeah. Huh. That's interesting. On January 31st, Starkweather wrote his second confession, because his first was the one in the car on the way back. Mm-hmm. And it read, Carol is the one who said to go to Washington State. By the time anybody will read this, I will be dead for all the killings. Then they cannot give Carol the chair too. From Lincoln, Nebraska, they got us. Jan 29th, 1958. 1958, kill 11 persons. Charles, kill nine, all men. Carol, kill two, all girls. 11. They have so many cops and people watching us leave i can't add all of them no that's just a crazy letter i'm gonna play you this audio clip that starkweather said following his arrest and following the murders and if i could go back into time i would kill as many more people as i could because i hate people so he didn't want to stop he hated people because his whole life he had thought everyone deserved what he had gotten, if that makes sense. Yeah. So as a recap, Robert Colvert, the gas station attendant, was murdered on December 1st, 1957. Carol's parents and baby sister, Marion, Velda, and Betty Jean, were murdered in their home on January 21st, 1958. Mm -hmm. August Meyer, the farmer, and teenagers Robert Jensen and Carol King were murdered on January 27th. The wards and their maid were murdered on January 28th. And lastly, Merle Coulson was murdered in Wyoming on January 29th. Charles Starkweather would be found guilty of murder of Robert Jensen and was sentenced to death. Good. So he didn't have to go to on for trial for the other crimes because... Yeah. At noon on June 25th, 1959, Charles Starkweather was executed by electric chair. Carol was found guilty as an accomplice and sentenced to life in prison. She served 17 years at Nebraska Correction Center for Women before being released for good behavior. 
She moved to Michigan where she met Frederick Clare, and the two married in 2007. Their marriage lasted about six years before they were both involved in a car accident in 2013, killing Frederick and severely injuring Carol. Carol has stayed pretty quiet about everything that was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, besides trying to say she was innocent the entire time. Innocent. At the beginning of 2020, she was asking for a pardon from mm. this killing. Yeah. It was not granted. So Carol's attorney, John S. Berry, in an interview with the Washington Post, said, quote, There are people in Nebraska, the ones who remember this. They can't quote Chief Standing Bear or Willa Cather, but by God, they can quote Charles Starkweather when he said she should be sitting on my lap in the electric chair, end quote. Now, I couldn't find the exact quote mm-hmm. that Charles Starkweather was saying this, but it is said that after he tried to say that Carol was innocent, he later on said that... She was guilty. Yeah. With him. Which and she... this case is actually extremely popular in literature and the media, even though the names of Starkweather and Fugate aren't really known by a lot of people. Well, I didn't know about that. Especially outside of Nebraska. Yeah. But some people might recognize other things that were influenced by them. Specifically, the song Nebraska on Bruce Springsteen's album Nebraska. He specific, he tells the entire story of Starkweather and the spree. Wait, that's so interesting. Starkweather and Fugate even inspired an episode of Criminal Minds. Oh. So season six, episode 13, called The 13th Step. There's also movies such as Natural Born Killers, and Badlands huh. that are based off of the story. Yeah. An interesting fact that I forgot to mention earlier, but before returning home, Mr. Ward was in a meeting with the governor of Nebraska where they were talking about Starkweather and the case and what they were going to do. How could this be happening in Lincoln? And then he gets home and is immediately murdered. So, Oscar. Do you have any questions? What are your thoughts? I learned so much. I had no clue none of this happened. I heard about a little bit about this, but it's just so crazy how they haven't, how she's like not guilty or whatever. Then that goes, my one my one question I specifically had was, do you think that Carol was being held hostage? No, she was a part of this. You think so? Yes. I'm so convinced. How are you convinced? I just feel like she definitely was a part of this. There's no way. I personally... I don't know. I want to believe her because if she's telling the truth that she wasn't involved, she didn't know this, then I really do feel bad for her. But it's just so hard to believe that she didn't know her parents were already dead. Yeah, no, for and so I mean, long I, too. I, I guess she could have just been scared of him. And that's yeah. why she kept along. And that would make sense why she immediately ran to the police officer. Yeah. But also there were times she was left alone in the ward's house and she could have called something mm-hmm. i don't know i feel bad but yeah that's so crazy do you have anything else no i'm mind blown right now well i hope you all enjoyed this first episode of murderous america as much as i did <laughs> all of our sources and references will be linked in the show notes thank you all for listening muchas gracias um stay tuned for next week's crime which will take place in california Thank you. Adios.
Thank you for listening to Murderous America. Hopefully you enjoyed the episode, but if you noticed anything that, you know, you didn't really think was factually right or you have more information, please reach out to us at Murderous America on Instagram. We'd love to hear your thoughts or just anything you think. And I'd also like to say a quick thank you to Reed Hunsager at Star City News for the audio clip.